This is Mormon Awakenings. My name's Jack Nanique. I hope you find something interesting here today. I want to talk about something I saw on Facebook the other day, and I'm just going to read the post for you. It says, I loathe how men can walk around shirtless, comma, and I can't. This is written by a female Facebooker, presumably, and she wants to be able to walk around topless. The reactions to this post have been interesting. Some people have said, oh, yes, you can. You certainly can walk around topless. I'm not going to speculate about the motives of people making those sort of comments, but I, I do want to note that that's that that sort of comment is missing the point. You know, she knows she can walk around without her shirt on if she wants, but she can't do it without getting a reaction from others. So it's the reaction that she really loathes. You know, so these glib comments like, oh, yes, you can take your shirt off. You sure can. I, I hope you do. You know, the, those are unresponsive to what this Facebooker is really complaining about. Now, there have been other type of comments, too. Some people have used this Facebooker's post to launch a broader discussion about all the issues surrounding gender politics, the glass ceiling, unequal pay. You know, and they're extrapolating from the sentiment of the initial post, of course. You know, we don't really know what this Facebooker feels about these broader gender-related issues because she doesn't explicitly state that. I mean, we can surmise what she would think, but she doesn't explicitly state her position on these broader issues. So people are extrapolating with these type of comments. Now, there's another group of commenters who are both male and female, by the way, who, who, are, who are basically rolling their eyes at this post. You know, they're basically saying you, you really expect the entire world to, to change all convention and completely change the, the rules of decorum just so that, you know, on some hot summer day, you can walk around with, you know, walk around topless. I'm sure people in this camp have, you know, what they feel are real problems and that this Facebooker needs some real problems to worry about. You know, as you read down the feed, you can see that the thread of comments starts to splinter further as people start to react to this initial post. You know, there's comments and cross comments and replies and, you know, it can start to get a little bit personal, actually. You know, Frank from Topeka thinks that Sarah from Seattle is being far too strident. And, you know, she, meanwhile, is calling him a boor. And, you know, but for people like him, there'd be no war. You know, very quickly, this thread has just devolved into a volley of ad hominem attacks. And the topics that we're discussing have nothing to do with the original post. We've, we've all seen threads like this. These threads sometimes sort of take on a life of their own. And as you read through these threads, sometimes you're tempted to dip your toe into them and make a statement yourself. And then, and then if you do that, if someone doesn't react the way you want them to react to your comment, well, then you can get really sucked into these things emotionally. And before you know it, your, you know, your sense of identity is tied up into this dumb sub-thread about some, you know, Facebooker that you you don't even know really. It's just a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who walks or, who, who really just wants to walk around topless. But your whole sense of self-esteem, temporarily anyways, is, is tied to this, this vortex. You know, it's, it's as if the, the threat itself had become this massive independent virus. And we know viruses, you know, are, are living, living organisms, but they live off the energy of other people. They live off the energy of their hosts. They can't live on their own. And this thread's kind of like that. You know, it's propagating itself. 
on the energy supplied to it by the Franks and the Sarahs and the whoever that's participating. And without the energy of those people, it would just, it would just die out. But with the energy, you know, particularly if people get emotionally invested in this thread, it can go on and on and on and, you know, morph into all these things. You know, like it's got a life of its own almost. And we've all seen people who have turned over their emotional energy to, to these sort of feeds, these threads. You know, they're in the room, but they're staring at their screens. They're typing away. Their faces are contorting. They're expressing, they're expressing emotion, but, but they're not there. It's like they're zombies or something. They're, they're mentally way, way far away in the ethernet somewhere, you know, in the cloud, but they're not in the room with you. Only their bodies are there. Like, like they're robots. You know, people can get so engrossed in these things that you can call their name out and they won't even respond. At that point, we don't own our technology. Our technology owns us, or more specifically, the viruses and the vortexes that live inside our technology own us. These independent parasites own us, and they feed off our energy, and they suck down our emotion, and they're the master doing what they want, whatever that is. Now, I don't want to get hysterical, okay? I'm going to start sounding like a real Luddite here. I'm pro-social media. I'm pro-technology. Even though, you know, we all, included me, get lost in these things from time to time. So I'm trying to make a point. And the point is, when, when this sort of thing happens, when you're lost in the vortex, you're temporarily without agency or freedom. And this loss of agency, of freedom to choose, can go on for a long time, hours, weeks, months, and it will continue to go on as long as you're not aware of it. But every now and then you see people having a what I call a technological awakening. They become enlightened. And that happens when they're aware that they are in fact not the vortex or the parasite. When they become aware that they're actually handing their energy over to the vortex and the parasite in time inside our social medias, inside our technologies. And when that happens, they notice all these kind of threads, all this kind of stuff that's going on in the cloud, all this kind of stuff that happens because of their technology as not them, as, as something separate and distinct from them. You know, and they look up from their screens and they look around and, and something really odd happens when you do that. You start noticing just how many people are plugged into the matrix, you know, have turned their freedom to the over to the machine and are being used by the machine and it's it's liberating on the one hand to become technologically awake or enlightened but you also realize how few people are awakened and enlightened you know you sit in a restaurant and you see that everybody's fiddling with their phones or you sit in the cafeteria at school or you're at church or wherever it is but then you notice a few people are actually looking out the window or there are other people talking to each other. You notice that people are present in the real world. And it doesn't mean that you never use the technology. You do use the technology, but you're the master and the technology is the tool. And, and the order in the relationship is right again. And when you have this awakening, you can then notice when the tool is trying to take you over. You can notice when you're getting sucked into these threads and these feeds and these vortexes. You can notice it and then you can step back and you realize for the first time that whatever fights or emotional whirlwinds you vested so much energy in, 
the outcomes of those things just don't really matter because they're not real. You realize that whole thing is just an illusion. Is the matrix using you? But you can never get to that point if you're not aware of the virus to begin with. Now, as you go through this technological enlightenment, if you will, you realize something else too. This sort of pattern, this pattern of being hijacked by something that's not you, is a pattern that that happens throughout all spheres of life. Not just on Facebook and not just on your phones or your social media, but at work, at church, in your family, at the office, even inside your own mind. And you start to realize, whoa, what else have I given my freedom up for? What else has hijacked me? In what other areas of my, of my life am I playing by the rules of the vortex and the parasite? In what areas of my life have the tools began to use me? Have the tools become my master instead of me being the master of the tools and using them? And one area of life that is paradoxically ripe for this sort of imbalance is religion itself. And our community is not immune from this. And sometimes we get so wrapped up with the tools of our religion, the metaphors of our religion, the implements of our religion, that they take on a life of their own and start to use us. They start to own us and drive us to do things that are are odd. The tools of our religion start to live off of our energy as if we're somehow plugged into the matrix, the machine. You know, in the same way that advanced communication technology, social media, supposed to enrich our lives and make communication easier for our real lives, not hijack us and turn us into, into zombies. You know, our church, our religion is supposed to point us towards something bigger than itself. It's supposed to point us towards higher planes of existence, enlightenment, deeper awareness, deeper compassion to purify us. But we don't always use it that way because sometimes we get lost ourselves in the viruses, in the vortexes, in the implementations, in the tools. And we can find ourselves having arguments about these things or taking stands about these things that even if we win, it's nonsensical. Think of Frank and Sarah. Is Frank a boor or is Sarah strident? It doesn't matter because they're lost in the virus. So we, when we become unconscious and unaware that we're lost inside a virus, it doesn't matter if we win or lose whatever, you know, little argument, dispute, battle, position, because we've missed the entire point of what our religion has been given to us for and what it's meant to do in our lives. You know, a great way to illustrate this is to think about a road sign at an intersection. And the road sign marks the names of the roads and they point you in the right direction if you're going somewhere. Okay, we, we've all, we all know that. Well, wouldn't it be odd to, to find at one intersection a, a bunch of people worshiping the road sign itself? Talking about how wonderfully green and straight and perpendicular it is. You know, and if anybody came along and said, you know, your, your road sign looks like it's a little rusty down by the grass, they, they would get all defensive about this. No, this is the most wonderful road sign of all. What, what do you mean? You must be a heretic. 
Well, this is ridiculous because we know that road signs point to something beyond themselves. They are not the ends in and of themselves. But we often make statements inside our community that are the equivalent of saying, our road sign is the one and only true living road sign, and it deserves all of our devotion. Now, I use this example because no matter what you feel about the road sign, how good it is, how accurate, how wonderful it is, it's a road sign. And it doesn't deserve devotion in and of itself. It's pointing you to higher planes. And if you're not aware of that fact, the road sign has captured you. You've become a slave to the road sign. You're not exercising free agency to, to, to use the roadside sign to, to move on to higher planes. You're unenlightened. You're unaware. You are unconscious. And the opposite is also true if you're one that's deeply offended by the road sign or offended by the people worshiping the road sign. You know, if you're one of those people who say, this is outrageous, get me my hatchet, my chainsaw, we need to cut this roadside down and we need to throw it right in the garbage. It's useless. And all these lemmings worshiping it, well, they're pathetic and stupid and I hate them all. And they start to pick fights with the people worshiping the road sign. Hey, you idiots, get out of my way. I'm going to do you all a favor. I'm going to hack this roadside down. Again, I've chosen this example because you, you wouldn't do that. You know, just because people are using the road sign wrongly and worshiping it instead of using it as a road sign doesn't mean you want to hack the roadside down and have no road sign. You want a road sign. You know, so this kind of stuff happens inside our community and it takes a little bit of wisdom to know when maybe you've gone a little bit overboard and you're worshiping the road sign. It takes a little bit of awareness to know if you're reacting to the wrong thing and are tempted to throw Molotov cocktails instead of just, you know, realizing that those people worshiping the road sign have made a mistake in their worship. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the road sign itself. And there are a lot of things like this inside our church. One thing in particular that's kind of a hot topic right now is history and specifically the, the Book of Mormon and how it was translated. Was it translated by using the Urim and Thummim, whatever those things were? Are they, are they spectacles that Joseph Smith put on and helped him read the plates as, as is often depicted in our artwork? Or was he looking in a hat at some seer stone that he found in the river by his house? You know, was he looking at plates while he was translating or were they off to the side? And the church has its narrative of these events, obviously, that, that is depicted in our artwork. We've all seen these pictures of Joseph looking studiously at the plates and there's a sheet across the middle of the room and then Oliver Cowdery or Martin Harris or somebody's on the other side, you know, writing with a quill on parchment, the room lit by candlelight. And it kind of gives you this feeling of awe. You look at it and you go, whoa, man, that is incredible. I got to read this book. You know, it doesn't take a genius to realize that's how the narrative came to be in the first place. People at Church HQ were trying to get people to read and consider this book. You know, and who, who was, whoever was in charge with commissioning the art didn't have all the facts, and they were doing the best they could. But the point of that whole narrative is to get people to read the book, to consider the book. Now, recently, we've learned things about that narrative that probably don't make a lot of sense and just don't really line up with the facts that were that are coming to light. But for some reason, instead of looking at this narrative as a signpost pointing people towards the book itself, to, to, to have people consider the book, 
it's devolved into this ad hominem cross volley of attacks where people's entire self-esteem, identity, their moral code are tied up in the outcome of this, of this argument, which is really taking place inside this vortex, this virus. You know, and this argument has hijacked its participants and they're lending massive amounts of energy to this, to this virus. And all the church was trying to do at the very beginning was sort of point people to the book. And you come away with kind of two conclusions. The first is, why are we clinging to this narrative? If we're the who, who really cares how the book came into existence? Because be it via spectacles, <laughs> some magical spectacles, or via some stone in a hat, it's equally implaus- implausible and ridiculous on one level. And second of all, are we not mature enough as a people where we can look at the contents of the book irrespective of its origins? You know, in some ways, I think the book is more plausible if you believe that it was just just an inspired writing by Joseph Smith and he never saw an angel or used any spectacles at all. I'm not saying that's my position, but in some ways that's a, that makes it a more approach, approachable book because that's how... I feel the spirit. I feel it via inspiration. And I feel that I write things sometimes that are inspired and that those writings are worthwhile. And I can go back and read those and and get comfort from them or insight from them. I'm not visited by an angel and I don't have a pair of Urim and Thummim spectacles laying around. But, But for some reason, the people on the one side of the argument will not budge on this narrative. And the people on the other side of the argument, they just want to burn the whole signpost down. And call everyone worshiping the signpost an idiots, and they want to throw Molotov cocktails. And both these positions are are made by people that I think are hijacked by by the by the vortex, the virus. Now I'm not saying history is irrelevant; it is relevant. But the history of the origin of the Book of Mormon and the Book of Mormon itself are two entirely distinct things. You know, let's do a little thought experiment. Let's, let's take the narrative that we've been taught on its face. Moroni came down, gave Joseph Smith some spectacles, gave him these plates. He, he translated it through, through holy supernatural means, Book of Mormon, yay. But then let's suppose that book itself was just ludicrous. So everything in the narrative happened, but the book is ridiculous. How, how does that help us? It doesn't help us at all. You know, let's take a completely different background narrative. Joseph Smith was on mushrooms. He was psychotic. He made it up a la Lewis Carroll and the looking glass. But the book itself was transcendent. <laughs> you know. And every time people read it, they were just moved to their cores. Well, what, what do the origins matter there? They don't. It's the book. And I tell my kids to read the book because I've read the book and I found it meaningful. And I've lived by its principles in so much as I can find them in the book. And, and it's, it's helped me. That's why I want them to read the book and I want them to consider it and, and use it as they think. Because the book itself, by the way, is also a signpost to something else. We're not just going to worship the book either. We're headed to higher planes. So if you think of the narrative as a signpost to, hey, pointing to the book, hey, consider this book. You know, we need a signpost like that saying to consider this book, which is foundational to our religion. See what you think of it. Should we live by it? Is it relevant? Does it help you? Does it contain truth? 
even if the way that we have in the past try to convince you to read it is not very representative of the facts as we know them now. There's something higher to consider here than the mere narrative we used to use. There's something deeper at work here than maybe what we've even historically appreciated. We ought to think about that. We ought to have a conversation about that instead of whether we're looking in a hat at a stone or wearing spectacles or, or whether some guy, you know, 40 years ago hid the stone for a while after he found it. Likewise, if you're someone on the inside, you're missing out on all of these deeper considerations as well. And you're lost in a ends justify the means kind of thing. Because you're defending the institution instead of the destination for the individuals involved. And you're not even really defending the institution. You're defending how the institution was yesterday and last week and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. You know, and, and the church is not neither living nor true if it's stuck in time 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, as I've said before, eternal progress is not the eternal status quo. And we don't, and when we don't have frank conversations about these things inside our community, then we forget that the church itself is, is a tool, is a technology, is, is something to help us get to somewhere else in our real lives, both our lives in this sphere and the next life, the real life as we live it with, with, with other people around. And instead we've been completely hijacked and we get, we get hijacked by the thing itself in its current state and we get lost in arguments about the signposts and the details that have nothing to do with the journey towards exaltation, enlightenment, awakening, however you want to think of it, except to point us in a direction. And once you're pointed in a direction and you're on your merry way, the signpost is in the rearview mirror and not too relevant to you anymore. But we don't think of it as that. We think of it as something, you know, that's bigger than that. And in that sense, it's hijacked us. Or rather, we've allowed ourselves to be hijacked. But in the same way that there's a real sense of freedom when you finally have your technological awakening. Remember back at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about being technologically awake. When you realize that the Facebook feed is not you, you're an independent person, and that social media ha is a tool that you can use, not vice versa. When you have that awakening, it's so liberating and suddenly you feel like you're in control of your own life. You're not being buffeted about. Even though sometimes when you wake up to this and you look around and you see that everyone else is still a slave to their device. You know, if we can wake up and start to see our signposts as signposts, and maybe they need some improving, maybe they need to be more effective, but they're signposts, okay? Let's not, let's not tie our entire identity to them. Let's certainly not start worshiping them or get lost into arguments about them that are going to hijack us. If we can have this kind of awakening, I think we can collectively go to the next level. And we ought not be afraid of that next level because in my view, the next level is unavoidable if you want to keep progressing. Now, if you talk to older people 
who've been in the church for a long time, I think they get this viscerally. Some of them do anyways. In fact, we have a history of getting this in dealing with it. This being those situations where our tools and our methods and our signposts posts seem to have hijacked our membership or some people within the membership. When we go, when we go too far in worshiping our own methodology, you know, we have a history of concepts in our church like the Leahona Mormon. And when we come up with those sort of paradigms, what we're really trying to do is find a way where we can get control of our tools and our implements. You know, where, where we can stop being their slaves and start using them to do the things that they're supposed to do. If the way we're using them is based on a faulty premise or something that's illogical or just bad, we, we change it. Even my grandfather, who was as Mormon as Mormons get, he had, you know, ancestors going back to the restoration itself. Even he would say things like, the church isn't true, but the gospel is. Well, what's he saying? He's saying sometimes our signposts are, are, are a little too worshipped. Or sometimes the, the methods we use to push people along the road to salvation is, you know, based on faulty premises. But, you know, and that was his way of dealing with it without his head exploding. His way of saying there's a higher purpose here. I don't want to get sucked into a virus or a vortex. And then there's a whole class of our membership that just refuses to play the virus vortex game, period. They're the people who come up to the signposts. They see all these people worshiping the signposts. They think that's odd. They look across the street. They see all the angry people mocking the people worshiping the signposts, getting their chainsaws fired up. They think that's odd. They look at the signpost and they see that it's pointing towards the direction they want to go and they proceed on their way. Or you can think of them as the people who read the debate between the Franks and the Sarahs in the Facebook feed, and they read it and they think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Next, on with my life. And the group in this category, I think, comprises the majority of the members of the church. And how are they able to do this? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. They don't take things so literally. And even if something is literally true, they know that it's the figurative takeaway that has value. They probably have their own relationship with God, have had their own spiritual experiences. So they're a little more independent. Or maybe they just have a lot of common sense. But whatever it is, they don't end up getting emotionally involved in these viruses, in these vortexes. And and this gives them clarity. They can see tools for what they are. Tools. They can see our Mormon methodology for what it is. A, A methodology. A signpost. And it's not like these people don't care. They do care. They're just not gonna, they're just not gonna lose sight of the forest from the trees. We've talked about my father before in this podcast. He was that kind of Mormon. He thought the Book of Mormon was a good book, taught good principles, but he didn't get lost in the whole debate about translation and the whole, all the stories. He knew the book's intent was supposed to, you know, make him a moral, better, more loving person. So that's what he did. Maybe because he was a convert. He was just very comfortable with the idea of God being present in a very flawed church full of very flawed people. That there was, that there was something higher to be learned from all that. And that screaming that you're right about things, the particulars, the details is getting lost in the weeds. Okay. So we have a history of adjusting and of resetting ourselves, of becoming temporarily 
awakened, where we see momentarily signposts as signposts and methods as methods, all for our benefit and not vice versa. And I think we're going through one of those awakenings right now. There are essays at LDS.org that talk about polygamy, that talk about translation, that talk about various first vision accounts. Joseph Smith Journal, his papers are now available. And these are all healthy things because it makes us all realize that maybe God's interested more in our character and our state of being than our blind adherence to some version of history or some set of facts from 200 years ago or or 2,000 years ago for that matter. And this, in my view, is a more mature, advanced, profound way of looking at our religion and its purpose which makes us think about the purposes of life and the nature of God and our own natures, which I think is one of the reasons we're here to begin with. And this is an idea taught by a lot of the religions among the children of God, a conclusion that a lot of cultures ultimately come to. What does that tell us about progress and growth and change and our signposts and our tools and our implements? There may be something more profound to what goes on inside our religion, to what we can experience participating inside our community and its religious life, its collective religious life, than whether or not Joseph Smith was looking in a hat or wearing magic spectacles, or whether or not someone who has doubts about polygamy is in fact the spawn of the devil. Hopefully there's something way more transcendent than that. And if we can somehow avoid the viruses and the vortexes and start to use our signposts as signposts, I think we'll notice we're walking closer and closer towards God as was originally intended. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Until next time.